pass on to you. Well, we're going to continue in our uh, new series, Foundations. Uh, if you were here this last week or you've been tied in, uh, watching us online or however else uh, you, you catch up, if you don't know that, it's always an option. If you miss anything, you can always catch up online through our website, Facebook, YouTube. Uh, you can always catch up on the sermons there. Um, there is the rare occurrence when we have like an international worker that we can't stream it. We don't obviously have those to be able to watch, but um, you can catch up on those. But last week we started our new series, Foundations. It is uh, us walking through our statement of faith, looking at what do we believe. Uh, we're part of the Christian Missionary Alliance. If you didn't know that, uh, welcome to the, to, to the club, uh, to the team. Uh, we are part of the denomination Christian Missionary Alliance. If you would like to learn more about the history, we have a rich history. It goes all the way back through uh, the beginning of the 1900s um, through a man called A.B. Simpson. Uh, but uh, we, the movement of the Christian Missionary Alliance, if you didn't know, was never intended to be a denomination. As a matter of fact, if A.B. Simpson was alive uh, in the 70s, which is when we officially became a denomination, uh, he would have been probably quite upset with us <laughs> because he never wanted it to be a denomination. But I think he would also agree, uh, if he had watched the progression of things, uh, the smartest way forward was to become a denomination. It was meant to be an interdenominational movement, which is why I think still to this day, uh, if I asked, uh, very few of you probably grew up Christian Missionary Alliance. Most of you are coming from other churches, other denominations, uh, because we still tend to collect people like that. And I think one of the reasons we do that is because our statement of faith is what I would call bare bones. It is really majoring on the majors. Our statement of faith says uh, what we consider to be the core belief of the Christian Missionary Alliance, I think, in my opinion, is pretty much the core beliefs of a Christian. We don't tag a lot of other things into it. We don't uh, add other fringe, I guess you would say, beliefs uh, into it. Now, our statement of faith, if you've read through it, uh, which hopefully you've taken the opportunity to opportunity to do uh, is pretty cut and dry as far as being a Christian, reading the Bible, and reading it for what it is. And um, these are all the things you'll pull out if you do read the scriptures uh, and come to the conclusions found in there. Uh, so uh, I love that about it. Uh, what I would encourage you to do is as we go through this series, you know, at least once a week, pull out your statement of faith. You have one in your bulletin. You can uh, pull that out, read through it, and just continue to familiarize yourself with what's written in there. My hope, uh, my prayer is that by the time we get through this series, you'll be able to read through a, that statement of faith, and you'll not only understand it, but you'll be able to discuss the topics that are in there and be able to discuss them with confidence and passion because it'll, it won't just be on a piece of paper, it'll be in your heart. You'll believe these things to be true, not because pastor said so, not because a document said so, but because you've gone to the scriptures, you've looked at what they say, and you've come to that conclusion yourself. Uh, so, uh, hopefully you took my encouragement last week. Those of you that were here, you've underlined, you've highlighted, you've done a couple of things with your statement of faith so that you're familiar with what you know and what you don't know in the statement of faith. Uh, we're not going to get very far today. I'm just going to let you know about that. Uh, it's going to be kind of like the Colossian study. We uh, moved only a few verses every week, uh, and I really want to be able to, to slow ourselves down through this. I don't want to just rip through this in two or three weeks uh, and be done with it and have just a, a, a slightly deeper knowledge of this. I really want to dive in uh, and get to the point where we can be confident that when we say we believe our statement of faith, we can say it with all sincerity, that we've really kind of chewed it up 
and, and digested what's in there. So if you have your statement of faith, you can read along with us. We're not, like I said, we're not going to be reading through the whole thing today or getting very far in it. But uh, if you do open it up, the first line in our statement of faith, it says, there is one God. And the verse that they take from that is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, if you don't know, normally we use uh, the New Living Translation as far as uh, displaying the verses on the screen. But through this series, we're going to be using the English Standard Version. Uh, because this is a little bit more uh, meaty and we're kind of digging into theological concepts, I want to use a translation that's a little closer um, to almost a word for word. So sometimes we're going to encounter some words or some topics in the ESV that uh, are going to be above some of our heads, and we'll seek to explain that so that we can really digest what's in there. But this is pretty clear. This doesn't need a whole lot of explanation. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, so we can walk away from that verse with the understanding that God is one being. He's not multiple uh, gods. He's one God. If you know, there are religions uh, around today who worship a multitude of deities. Uh, we're not one of them. Uh, we are a monotheistic religion, meaning we believe in one God. We worship one God. We're going to come back to this topic because it breaks it up with one line here in the middle, and then we'll come back to it after that. It says next, who is infinitely perfect. And that comes from Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. It says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, there are a lot of passages in the Bible that speak to God's holiness, God's perf uh, perfectness, and this is one of them. Uh, what I like about this verse is it not only affirms that God is perfect, but what does it also do? It sets the bar for us. It says, The bar isn't just try harder. The bar isn't just do better than your neighbor. The bar isn't just do better than your parents. The bar isn't do better than whatever sinner you're using to compare yourself to. The bar is set at perfect. That's our goal. So I don't know about you, but I've never had the opportunity to pat myself on the back because I've been perfect. Uh, I've never reached in it or achieved that mark yet. And so I can continue to strive throughout my life to this bar of perfection, the, the perfectness of God. Um, what this statement says, that when it says that God is infinitely perfect, it means that God has no beginning and no end. Now, I'm, I'm a philosophy kind of person. I love to think about philosophical concepts. Have you ever sat and tried to imagine or think about and wrap your mind around the reality that God has always been? Like, there was no point where God was created. There's no point where He began. He just always was. I don't know about you, but I can lose some sleep over that. Because trying to process the reality that there is a being that doesn't have a beginning. Everything we know has a beginning. Our entire frame of reference as human beings is based on life and death. Everything has a birth and everything has a death. Things have always come into existence and they will always go out of existence. We just have no frame of reference for something that is truly infinite. We just don't have it. But I do like to think about it. Like, man, God has just always been. Like billions and billions and billions and billions of years before the world was ever created, God just was. And it's so hard to fathom that. 
But that's who he is. He's infinite, but he's infinitely perfect, which means there is no error which has ever been found or ever will be found with God. He is incapable of error. And I think, uh, you know, when I was in Bible college, you know, people would always try to come up with those conundrums or uh, I actually had one person one time ask me who wasn't a Christian and say, oh, well, if God is all-powerful, can, can he make, uh, can he create something that he can't lift? I'm like, well, that's just a dumb question. Uh, I know you think you're smart by asking that question, but there's a lot of things God can't do. One of them is sin. He can't sin. He's incapable of sin because he is infinitely perfect. He is without error. He is incapable of error or sin. God is, there is one God who is infinitely perfect. And I want to move on to this next statement because that's where we're going to park it for a bit. Existing eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, if you can fully grasp this concept and you are perfect in your understanding of this, then please move to the front. You will finish the sermon because uh, this is a tough concept to really wrap our minds around, uh, to really grasp and fully understand. It comes from the verse Matthew 28, 28, 19 is one of the verses they use to justify this. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So this is Jesus talking here, and he's encouraging us as we go into the world and as we make disciples, we are to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is putting them on equal footing. Uh, This would have been absolute blasphemy if Jesus and the Holy Spirit weren't considered God as well. You would never put them on this same pedestal as God. So to do this means that whoever's speaking considers all three of these beings to be one, to be of equal uh, importance and equal value. Uh, And so that's where we're going to start. So you might look at this uh, and you might ask the question, how is this not polytheism? How is this not a belief that there are multiple gods? Um, Some have drawn the conclusion that what is happening here is Uh, Jesus is encouraging us to worship three gods, the Father as one God, the Son as one God, and the Holy Spirit as one God. Um, Honestly, as a rational being, that makes more sense. So how is this not polytheism? One big way is if you are a nerd and you decide to study polytheism, uh, which most of you probably don't uh, do, there are, when you look at it, polytheism, there are multiple gods who are n- never always in agreement. It doesn't exist in polytheism. Think about uh, the Greek gods that you probably learned about in school or, uh, you know, through movies or whatever. Uh, what's always happening with the Greek gods? They're always fighting. Like, they're always angry with each other. They're always jockeying for position and power. Uh, and they're, if you don't know, they're not actual gods. They're just man-made things. But that's, that's the best we can come up with as far as polytheism. is. When, there's, when there are multiple gods, they're in competition with one another for power, for glory, uh, for many other things. But that's what polytheism is. And they're certainly not in harmony. You don't see any kind of polytheistic religion where all of the gods work in this perfect, harmonious way. Uh, that's not what polytheism is. Whereas the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are co-equal. Every time Scripture talks about them, it puts them on equal footing. They are co-equal. They are co-eternal. 
When the Bible talks about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it refers to all of them as having been eternal. None of them brought the others into existence. It's not like there was God the Father, then He created the Son, and then He created the Holy Spirit. That's not how it worked. All three have always been. They've always been present. They are all three perfect in holiness, as we've already covered, infinitely perfect. All three have that characteristic. They are one in being, essence, eternity, and power. We can read that from Scripture. They are 100% in harmony of will. And I think for me, that's one of the big uh, traits of the Trinity or the triune God that sets it very much apart in my mind from polytheism is they are always in complete harmony. That's only possible if they are one. If you, as soon as you separate it, uh, you become disharmonious. You can't be in harmony if you have two completely different wills. To be of complete harmony, there has to be one will. And so, all three of them are complete harmony and will. They are one in nature, and they are infinite. Um, All three having been without a beginning, without an end. They have just always existed, and they always will. To wrap our minds around a large concept like this, uh, just think about this. Uh, When I am working with someone, discipling them or mentoring them, one of the things I I generally have them do is to think about the different aspects of their being as they process how to uh, be a steward of their energy. We each have different aspects, if we sit and think about this, uh, which are combined but each separate. Uh, the ways I break them up when I'm talking with people are we have, you have the spiritual energy, you have your emotional energy, your physical energy, your mental energy. Whether you call it energy or health or whatever you want to refer to it as, um, most of us can acknowledge when we are tired physically, what happens to our emotional state? It affects our emotional state. But we acknowledge that those two things are separate. They're not the exact same thing. Our spiritual condition is in some ways different than our mental or emotional, or our our physical is certainly different than our mental or our, our emotional health or energy. You can be physically well and not emotionally well, or you can be emotionally well and not physically well. We acknowledge this in our own beings, uh, and so we we can see that we are composed of multiple different uh, whatever you want to call it, health, energies, uh, essences, but it's one. We're one person, even though we have to acknowledge there are different parts of us. It's actually when we don't acknowledge this that we end up being unhealthy. If we end up saying, well, uh, I'm physically I'm not, I'm not unwell, and so I'm just going to ignore the fact that emotionally I'm falling apart, uh, and we don't acknowledge those things, what happens? We get into a very unhealthy state. Um, those things need to be all in, in harmony with each other, or they're going to negatively affect each other. If you're physically drained, you're going to be emotionally drained. If you're emotionally drained, you're going to find yourself physically tired a lot. You're going to find yourself mentally tired. You're going to find it hard to focus, things like that. Um, so we have different aspects, not obviously even remotely similar um, to God and the three beings uh, of God, because we have to remember that God is a divine being, not a divine human. And I think that's where some of us get our error in the way we understand God. We view God as a divine human. 
Because we acknowledge that we're made in his image, we think, okay, so basically God is just like human plus, like human platinum. Uh, he just is, is what we are, just in a holy fashion, and that's just not true. We are created in his image, but he is, we are not exact copies of God. To make something in your image does not mean that it is 100% exact copy replica. And so uh, when we think about God, we can't just think, well, God is a divine human. He's a divine being. And honestly, we can't even begin to fathom what that being is because we can't even wrap our minds around the fact that he's eternal, that he's infinite. How could we possibly understand his being? So though we are created in his image, we need to acknowledge what he is, is beyond our understanding. We have to accept as limited, as mortal beings, we are limited in our, in our capacity to understand him um, because he is not limited. He is without limit as God. So I'm going to, I know some of what we've talked about has been technical thus far, but I'm going to ask you to just like buckle on your processing helmets right now because we're going to go through, I think this is the best explanation of how to view God as existing as three in one, but still being one God and not being a multiple God religion. Um, man, and I forgot my can. I meant to bring a can of soda up as an illustration, but I forgot it. Um, but most of us have probably seen what a can of soda looks like. Uh, so I want you to think about a can of soda. If you were to look at a, a can of soda directly from the top, what do you see? What shape? Okay, we're on the same page. We're awake. Okay, you would see a circle, okay? If you look at it from the side, you see... Okay, we're almost on the same page. You wouldn't see a cylinder. You only see that when you think about it in the way of 3D. See, I love my wife. She's so great. If you were to look at this as a completely flat image, you would see a rectangle. We know it's a cylinder because we think of it in a three-dimensional capacity. But if you just look at it in a 2D way, or not actually a 2D way, if you look at it uh, without depth, you see a rectangle, okay? Imagine, this is where the hard part's going to come. I want you to imagine... I almost sent you all a video, but it was so nerdy. I'm like, I can't do this to everybody. I'm the only one that probably enjoys this as much as I do. Uh, it was like a video of what would happen if you were a 3D person who got, you know, all, woke up in, in a 2D world. Um, so if you're nerdy like me and you want to watch that, jump on YouTube and just type that in, like 3D, 2D being in a 3D world. Uh, it's about eight minutes of complete nerd. Uh, so I want, but I want you to imagine that you lived in a 2D world and a 3D object interacted with your world. Uh, so the way to think about this is that in a 2D world, you don't have height. or uh, You don't have height. There is no up or down. There's only width and length. You only see things as a line or a dot or a line. Everything is a line. doesn't matter. You wouldn't be able to tell shape because everything is just a line. Uh, and the darker the line, the closer it is to you, and the lighter the line, the further away. So a circle, you would just see like a dot, and then the line would get lighter as it, as it went out. That's all you'd see. So imagine being like on a piece of paper. That's a 2D world. Uh, you're on this piece of paper, and a 3D object interacted with your world. Uh, and we'll say the can of soda. How would you see 
a can of soda interacting in your 2D world? What would it look like? Most of you have shut down. You're just done with this. It would look like a line. That's all you'd see. Because you have no height or depth. You only see things in that capacity. So if a soda, can of soda were to interact through a piece of paper and you lived in that, all you would see is the line of that can of soda. That's all you would know it to be. Because you have a limited perspective. You can only process things in a two-dimensional capacity. To, to, if you had a, I don't know, you had a 2D buddy who, you know, talked about, you know, how 5G was going to mess up your brain, but he also talked about this 3D world. You would think just this weird conspiracy theorist person, like this, this nut job that talks about that three-dimensional world that, that, that exists with this thing called height, which you have no capacity of reference for because you live in a 2D world. See, this can would show up as a line, though in our three-dimensional world, our 3D world, we know it exists as a line when it interacts in a, three, in a 2D world, a circle when it's viewed from above, a rectangle when viewed uh, from the side, and a cylinder when viewed at an angle. Four different ways. So if a simple can of soda can exist at all times as a line, a circle, a rectangle, and a cylinder at the same time without being very special. There's really nothing all that special about a can of soda. It's not going to save anybody. It's not anybody's savior, hopefully. Uh, Then is it really that crazy for us to think that God could exist as more than one thing in our frame of reference while still being one thing? How many dimensions do you think God has? We can only think and process in three-dimensional capacity. But how many dimensions do you think God might have? Four? Is God 4D? Is He 5D? Is God infinite D? You see what I did there? There's a nice little infinite D, infinity. Okay. No one else appreciates that, apparently. Uh, We have no frame of understanding of how many dimensions God could have to him. My argument for this in a philosophical way would be God has to be at least four-dimensional because I believe the spiritual realm exists as the other dimension that we cannot see. And it, when it interacts with us, we, have, we can't even begin to explain how, what we would describe it as. But there's a, we acknowledge, and the Bible talks about, that all around us is a spiritual realm that rages, that war rages at all times in this other dimension, this other realm uh, around us. And so my argument would be he's at least 40, uh, four-dimensional, but my guess would be he is beyond that. His dimensional capacity is so far beyond us that we are as that two-dimensional being watching three-dimensional things interact with our world all the time and never even realizing, because all we would see it is as a line. We'd never know that it was three-dimensional unless that three-dimensional being were to interact with our world and tell us, hey, just want you to know I'm not just a line. I'm a cylinder. I'm a circle. I'm a rectangle. I'm all these things. You can't possibly fathom it, but just have faith that it's true. To me, that's how I view God interacting with us. He says, I know you see me as a human, but man, I'm so much more. And I know that all you can process is that, uh, that I'm both 100% man and 100% God, but it goes even so far beyond that. God, it, it, it we can acknowledge that he is so far beyond us 
that we shouldn't be able to explain in simple terms who He is. But we can, we can have the faith that He is God and that though He is beyond our understanding, the way that He has explained Himself, we can grasp, we can get a hold of, and we can put our faith in Him. I don't know if you've ever heard the water explanation for the Trinity, that water can exist as a solid, as a liquid, and as a vapor, all, you know, all while being considered H2O or water, um, and that's similar to the Holy Spirit, but I think the whole, though it might blow your brain a little bit, uh, the three-dimensional being interacting with a 2D world to me has been the best explanation because of the way that we think is so limited because of our three-dimensional capacity. So the next thing in our statement of faith uh, says that Jesus Christ is the true God and the true man. We're going to continue on this theme of God being three parts but one, uh, but we're going to talk about it now in, in the reference of Jesus. Jesus Christ is the true God and the true man. Again, can of soda can exist as a line, cylinder, circle, and a rectangle all at once while still being one. So for us to process how can God be 100% man, or true man and true God at the same time? Well, that's how. It's because he's just beyond our understanding. They pull their understanding or, or their... Uh, if you look at the little numbers, like last week, we had the little numbers uh, in the statement of faith and the references. If you look at it on the website, um, you'll see those numbers and these references as well. Um, that's why I'm bringing these up so you can at least see where we reference uh, that in our statement of faith. Uh, it comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. It says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I just want you to process this for a second. Uh, In the frame of reference that we just talked about, God, though being, I don't know, let's say, a 10D being, humbled himself and came in the form of a three-dimensional being so that we could grasp him. Our minds couldn't grasp him if he came as the ten-dimensional being that he is or whatever he is. And so he humbled himself uh, almost like you would humble yourself to become this, this pathetic little line in a 2D world um, that it would reduce everything. You'd have no characteristics about who you are, your personality, your hair color, your height, Uh, whether you had hair or not, all would be completely irrelevant. All of those things require three-dimensional space in order to be understood. So you would have to empty yourself of so much of who you are to become this two-dimensional being. Does that not sound so much like the Scripture that we're reading right here? God emptying, emptying Himself of so much of who He is so that we could at least in some capacity understand Him. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
I love this uh, verse. I love this understanding. Uh, I've heard this preached on so many times and so often about what this means that God emptied himself. Did God fully empty himself? Was he fully God? Did Jesus totally understand things? Like when it says in Scripture and that, you know, that Jesus understood something or that Jesus perceived something in his mind, does that mean that he emptied himself of his God knowledge? Uh, did he know everything at all times walking around? Uh, you can come to your own conclusions on that. I'm not going to answer that theological question for you. Uh, but what we do know, again, based on the conversation we just had, I, I love the illustration of a 3D being in a 2D world because, and again, if you are nerdy, watch that video because it really does explain uh, a little bit about that, uh, what it would be like to be a two-dimensional being and have something three-dimensional interact with you. 99% of its characteristics would have to go because you would only ever see the line. And it would just be dark and light. As that would be, and that, that you could, you would, if you were really, really gifted as a two-dimensional being, you could learn to determine the shape of things by circling around them and viewing the line at different brightness and darkness, but you'd have to be really gifted at that. But most, most of the characteristics would have to be removed. And so Jesus, when he came to our world, he had to empty himself of so many uh, facets of his being for our brains to comprehend him. Have you ever uh, read the Bible and, and you see that God says, like, if anyone were to ever view me, they would instantly die? Maybe because he is a dimensional being so far beyond us that the, our brain would just simply explode if we tried to understand who he is and the, the capacity with which he is. See, this, this idea that uh, what their statement of faith is saying, that Jesus Christ is the true God and the true man, it was a very difficult concept for me to wrap my mind around uh, because some of you know I came out of the Jehovah Witness uh, faith, and so in that faith they believe that Jesus was Michael the archangel who was recreated as a human, and they called him Jesus. He wasn't God. He had no capacity of deity in him, uh, in their belief system. Uh, they definitely believe that he was not divine, that when he died, uh, they don't believe he died on a cross, they believe he died on a stake, uh, that when he died, he actually died and was no longer uh, cognizant of uh, his life, and then was again reformed three days later uh, as a uh, kind of like a human plus, and uh, then he was taken to heaven after some time. That was my understanding of Jesus when I became a Christian, and so it was really hard for me to wrestle with this, the divinity of Jesus, the deity of Jesus. Um, and they also believe that the Holy Spirit was not a being, but more of a force. Like we have emotions like anger and jealousy and rage. Uh, well, the Holy Spirit was just like a godly emotion. He was like a godly force is what they believe. Uh, which, as crazy as that might sound to a Christian, it's actually a lot easier to wrap your mind around. Because it takes all of the difficulty of God being beyond us and being so much uh, greater than us uh, and that we can't fathom him or understand him. It takes all of that out and says, oh, no, here, you want to be able to understand God really easily? Well, there's one God, his God the Father, and then Jesus, he's not really deity. He's not 100% God and 100% man. He's just 100% man uh, who was an angel, but now he's not an angel anymore. He's just completely human. And the Holy Spirit, that whole thing, well, we're just going to ignore that and just say that like, that was like just an emotion. A lot easier to wrap your mind around. But I had to acknowledge at some point as a believer that I don't want to worship a God who, I, who makes complete sense to a mortal being with very 
limited knowledge. I mean, to the very basic concept of, if I were to take like a really advanced class in college, and uh, it was like something I was really passionate about, and I was to sit and listen to a, the professor, and I'm like, all right, give me, give me your best like rundown of like your, the, whatever concept you're thinking about right now. And I was able to completely track with that professor, and I understood absolutely everything he said. Uh, I would be a little worried. Like, is this guy actually smart enough to teach me? Like, if I can understand everything he's saying, and I've barely even taken this course, and that's just a human in a human, I, I can actually rest assured that the God I serve I really can't wrap my mind around a lot of the concepts of him. Again, even the fact that he doesn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. Nothing created God. I can't understand that. But I'm glad I can't understand that. Because it affirms he is infinite. See, if God really is who he says he is, if he is eternal, if he is omnipresent, which means he is everywhere at all times, if he is omniscient, meaning he knows everything. He knows the, the inner thoughts of your mind. He knows, absolutely, he knows more about you than you know about yourself. If he is omnipotent, meaning he is all-powerful, everything is within his power, there are probably going to be facets of his being which are beyond my limited understanding. Again, going back to the 3D versus 2D world, if you lived as a 2D being, you wouldn't be able to even begin to understand concepts of three dimensions, someone trying to explain to you what height was, you'd never be able to grasp it. Now imagine trying to explain a 4D or a 5D being. Have you ever looked at anything, anybody here ever researched like four dimensions because they're talking about it now? Yeah? Total, easy to understand, right? It's like breakfast reading while you're eating your cereal. No, it's like mind-boggling stuff. Why? Because even one dimension above us is just too much for us to understand. And I look at this and say, okay, how can God be omnipresent? Maybe that has something to do with the fourth dimension. I don't know. But what I can do is I can rest in the fact that He is beyond us. He is beyond our understanding. What I can look to confidence, though, is to the Word of God. Because that's His letter to us. That's his uh, way to help us grasp and understand the concepts to which our brains can grasp and understand. We look at 1 Timothy 2.5. It says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, and men, the man Christ Jesus. So this appears to be speaking to the humanity of Christ, that he is uh, the mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And then Galatians speaks very directly to his deity. Galatians 3.20 says, Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. This is speaking about Jesus, saying uh, for there to be an intermediary, it means that there have to be two parties. Meaning, if I was an intermediary between, say, uh, you and your spouse, that means that there are more than one parties. Actually, there's three in that. Which, how many aspects to the divine God do we serve? Three. To be an intermediary means there's three parties. What he's actually speaking of are the three parties being God, Jesus, and humanity. But he's saying that the intermediary and God are one. He is acknowledging the oneness of God. Just because there's an intermediary, he's saying, does not mean there are two, but one. Jesus himself affirms the oneness that he shares with God the Father. In John 17, 11, 
He says, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. He's talking, obviously, to God the Father. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And so this leaves us with a bit of a dilemma as if we're wrestling with the deity of Christ. Uh, there have, if you talk to people uh, who aren't believers, even some that are, uh, that would uh, profess to be believers, um, there are some that would say, yeah, I, don't, I just don't buy into the whole Jesus being deity thing. It's really hard for me to, to rationalize that God uh, became a human being and like the whole Holy Spirit uh, and, and Mary and that whole thing, which we'll cover next week, by the way, uh, and how, how that whole thing happened and how Jesus could be God, but like still human. Uh, a lot of people wrestle with that. And a lot of religions have just basically thrown it out the window, like the Jehovah Witness. They're like, ah, this is too difficult to understand, so we're just going to go with the fact that he wasn't God. But it leaves us with a difficult uh, dilemma if we're going to say, well, we can't deny that Jesus lived. There's too much historical evidence that Jesus did live. Uh, So many people have to say, well, okay, I'm just going to settle on the fact that Jesus was a really good teacher. He was a great moral teacher. He was a a thinker beyond his time. Uh, he, He led people in good moral beliefs. I don't know if you've ever heard this from people. I have from multiple people. Uh, they'll say, you know, especially talking to someone who's like Muslim and, and things like that, they acknowledge that Jesus existed. They acknowledge even that he was a prophet, but they just say that's all he was. He was a great moral teacher. He wasn't deity. If you've never read the book Mere Christianity, uh, I would highly recommend it as a good read. Uh, it is one of my favorite books of all time that I've ever read. Uh, it's by C.S. Lewis. Uh, and in Mere Christianity, he, uh, C.S. Lewis comes to the sound conclusion, which has actually been around. Some people attribute this to C.S. Lewis, but it's actually been a- around from a lot longer uh, before C.S. Lewis himself. He says in, in Mere Christianity, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. I love that. I love that quote. C.S. Lewis was a brilliant man. If you don't know C.S. Lewis's story, he sought he was, went on a journey as an unbeliever to disprove Christianity because he was a person of such high intellect. He thought, well, I'm smart enough. I'm going to debunk this whole thing, and I'm going to shame these Christians for the doofuses that they are. And as he really dove into it, he became a Christian. He realized, man, this is real. The evidences are far too great 
for somebody who was a true intellectual like C.S. Lewis. So he becomes a believer and he begins to, to process this. If you ever read Mere Christianity, your, your head probably hurt. You probably needed to use some like Excedrin or Tylenol or something. Uh, it's really weighty stuff. You probably have to read through it a handful of times or read the same chapter like multiple times to process it because he was just so intelligent. But he comes to this conclusion, uh, and I, I think it was Lee Strobel that, that coined the term, terminology liar, lunatic, or lord to say that's the only option you're left with, Jesus. He didn't give us the option to say, like, oh, he's just a nice guy. Do you know any nice people that call themselves God? Because I don't. I call them Looney Tunes, all right? They're crazy. Crazy people call themselves God. Or, like he says, there he was a fiend. He was a demon trying to say he was God. Uh, good moral teacher doesn't exist. It's no longer on the table. Religions like the Jehovah Witnesses and any others who deny the deity of Christ, they're better off rejecting that Christ existed at all. Honestly, their case would be way better if they just tried to act like he never existed. Because to try to package Jesus as anything other than God, it's just foolishness. And C.S. Lewis acknowledges that. So what? So what do we do with this? It's a lot of information I threw at you today, a lot of processing. Hopefully your brains don't hurt too much. Uh, what do we do with this? Uh, again, one of the things we're going to do in this series is we're not just going to talk about information. Every single sermon in this series is going to end with the question, so what? Because if we don't learn how to apply the information to our lives, it's useless. Just having it sit in our brain is as useless as a book sitting on a library shelf. Until it's processed, it doesn't do us any good. And so I would argue that it's not enough to simply know that God is one. James 2.19 makes that very clear. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. To have the knowledge is not enough. Too many people will stand before God one day after their death, and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Because all they ever had was knowledge. They knew about God, but they did not have a relationship with Him. There's no fruit in their life. They didn't walk with God. My, my concern is that the American church has birthed this as a normal uh, outcrop of, of the way that we do church, is to create people who have information but no relationship. We can just look at people living lives of, of rampant sin, of doing things completely outside the Word of God and say, oh, it's okay, they're a work in progress. No. Perfect. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the bar. Our lives should naturally produce the fruit of the Spirit. We should naturally be growing closer and closer to Jesus every day. We shouldn't need people to chase us every week. We shouldn't need pastors to be calling us and chasing us to walk with Him, to, to convince people that Jesus is worth it. We should want it. That's the life of a believer. Our whole last series was about the new life we have in Christ. If you didn't resonate with the new life stuff, that's a problem. It means there's a good chance you have information, but no relationship. And information won't get you through the gates of heaven. It's not enough. There has to be complete death to self and a recreation of who we are. He makes us a new creation. 
to sit there and say, well, I went to church. I went to Sunday school. I knew a lot about you, man. I memorized all of uh, multiple chapters of the Bible. Good for you. That's not what is required for heaven. It is a humbling act of acknowledging we don't have what it takes to earn salvation. Acknowledging we are sinful beings and falling before the mercy of, of a great and powerful God. And we enter into relationship with him. The Holy Spirit comes into us and we begin to change without anybody having to prod us or push us or coerce us. We begin to desire the things of God. We begin to get frustrated that we at times give into the flesh and we don't live in the spirit. Just like Paul, when we read Romans 7 and 8, he's in this battle of constantly saying, I, I don't do what I want to do, but I do that which I do not want to do. He's in this battle. He's wrestling. Yes, he's still sinning, but no one has to tell him that what he's doing is wrong. He acknowledges it in his spirit. He's constantly frustrated that he's not living out the faith that he wants to live. That's the life of a believer. If you're instead frustrated that Christian people seem to always be uh, putting downers on you and, and ruining your fun or uh, you know, making more rules that you don't want to follow, there's a chance you only have information and not relationship because there should be this desperate desire to want him more. And I don't know about you, but I, I don't ever want to be a church that makes it comfortable to just have information. I want us to constantly feel the weight if we don't have a relationship. See, we need to live like God is the only God, not just know that He is. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 31 says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So you have here the information that God is one. There is only one God. But then Jesus adds on to it, says this commandment is just as important. And what, the way I read it is, you're going to have to actually live like it, which means loving your neighbor as yourself. Jesus came. The way that he demonstrated his character, his, his person, was to love everybody equally. He, loved, he showed love where there was no rational explanation as to why. It's why the Pharisees got so mad at him. It's because he loved the prostitute as much as he loved the Pharisee. He just loved people. He lived this out. And so we see Jesus saying, yeah, the greatest commandment is that there is one God, but you actually have to live like it. And my question for us before we leave today is do we live like we believe there are no other gods? Or do we live like, yeah, God is important, but my job is also kind of my God because I worship it. I give it my time, I give it my energy, I give it my best, and God gets second. Well, if that's how we live, then we don't live like God is the only God. Or we live like our children are God. Like they're the most important thing, like our life. Because whatever we worship, our life revolves around that. We talked about this in our New Life series. Before we became a Christian, our life revolved around us 
everything, our universe, our world, our desires, the way we spent our money, the way we lived our life, it revolved around us. If it made us feel better, we did it. If we gave money to a charity, we only did it because it made us feel better. We were the center of our universe. When we become a Christian, everything shifts to where now Jesus is the center of our universe. And everything we do is for His glory, for Him and not for us. To live like that means that whether it's our work, whether it's our kids, whether it's our hobbies, whether, no matter what it is, everything is for His glory and everything comes secondary to Him. Everything comes secondary to Him. Do we live like God is the only being or only thing worthy of our worship? Because if we are, through our actions, worshiping something other than Him, we are not living this out. We are living like there are multiple gods, and God is just the biggest one. And so we worship Him ultimately, but not solely, being our kingdom or even ourselves as a secondary God. And so no one can answer that question for you other than yourself. I would encourage you to spend some time with God this week. Ask Him, is there anything that I'm giving worship or glory to? that belongs to you? Am I living as if there are minor gods amongst the Godhead, or is there one God? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are one God. God, I thank you that you're so far beyond our understanding that we can't begin to explain some of the facets of your being. Your dimensional capacity, or whatever we want to call it, is just so far beyond us and yet you've made yourself relatable. You've written to us your word. You've given to us the Holy Spirit who empowers us, who illuminates this word to us in a way that we can grasp, in a way that goes beyond our human understanding. You have made yourself accessible to us. How amazing is that? We don't deserve it. We could have never earned it, and yet you have given that to us. Lord, I pray that as we continue to go through uh, this series, that we would build a foundation on you which is firm, an understanding of who you are and what we believe that, that can weather the storms of life, the tragedies, the crises of life. Lord, I pray that you would bless us. Holy Spirit, give us wisdom and understanding beyond what we are capable so that we can understand you for who you are to the greatest capacity with which we have been equipped or can be. Lord, I pray that our brains can process this information this week as we live it out, that we would live like you are one God who is infinitely perfect, like you, Jesus, are our Savior, and that we have a relationship with you Lord, bless us as we go, that we would make your name known everywhere that we go, that this week people would come into relationship with you because of the life that we live, lived out for the one true God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, have a great week.